0: It's so interesting, right? Because for most of us, we hold our fears inside because we think we're the only ones that are afraid of those things. Fear is attached to weakness. And what that does is it makes the fears bigger and it creates an even bigger barrier to stepping into these things. But what I can honestly say is what lies on the other side of fear is you living a wholehearted life, you stepping into opportunities.
1: Welcome to The Balance Theory, a podcast aimed at arming you with tools and tips so that you are well-equipped to not only identify and define, but own your own definition of balance. I'm your host, Erica, and thank you for joining me today. Hello, Balancers, and welcome to episode 81 of the Balance Theory podcast. We are almost at the two-year anniversary mark of the podcast, so I just want to say thank you to everybody who's been along the journey, whether you've been with us from the very beginning in 2020 or whether you've jumped on the balance train only recently. I'm so glad you're here choosing to spend your time with me, whether you're walking, driving, cleaning the house, on your way to work. Know that I'm very grateful that you've chosen to expand your personal development by including our podcast in your routine. And I'm so excited to be sharing this next guest with you today. Before I dive in, I just wanted to say I have recently bought a Kindle because as you all know, I'm now living overseas and we've got quite a bit of travel in the pipeline. And I've been very slack with reading and really wanted to get back on making it a part of my consistent routine. But I also thought of the practical hurdle of having books on me all the time especially moving around in suitcases so I bought a kindle and I've only had it for three days and I am freaking obsessed with it it's just so easy to use and my favorite feature is like the fact that you can highlight note tab it and then it just condenses it all for you and gives you like a list of notes from that book so my pedantic brain is in organizational heaven right now and I just wanted to let you all know that I'm really loving my kindle on that note, I did put up a post on my stories the other night, which if you're not linked up with us on social media, jump over on Instagram. Our handle is at the Balance Theory. It's the same on TikTok as well, but more on Instagram. I'm always engaging with you guys on what content you want to see more of, new ideas I'm having. So if you do want to get involved, give feedback, or just sort of share your thoughts on any projects that I'm working on, that's the absolute best place to be most informed. So Give us a follow and look out for stories. But um, I put up a story about doing additional episodes every month on almost like a book review. So imagine like a 10 to 15 minute episode where I've read a book, I kind of give you the high level takeaways and have a bit of a chat about how that applies to your balance. And I thought that was a good way to keep myself accountable to be reading ongoingly. So I put up a poll, 100% of you said, yes, please do this. So this month I'll be reading a couple of books and I'll be choosing one to share with you. And hopefully I'll get those double episodes out to you shortly. So stay tuned for that. But enough of my ranting. Today's wonderful guest is Penny Lacazzo, who is the world's first happiness hacker on a quest to teach 10 million humans by 2025 how to flourish in life. Penny and I chat about so many incredible topics today. My favorite being how to redefine productivity. And when we say that we're busy, what does that actually mean? What are we using that as a mask for? Are you using that as a band aid to make yourself just feel like you're productive and so importantly have so much on, or are you using that as a band aid for feeling overwhelmed? So that's a really interesting point we go into. Penny also shares her thoughts on the impact of COVID and specifically its ongoing effect of burnout. So, if any of you had that experience where after lockdown you felt completely burnt out and like you had no energy and then it was really confusing because you had so much time off, then Penny shares really interesting scientific research and psychological insight into why that's the case. We talk about burnout, how to overcome fear, how to deal with change, the impacts of long-term chronic stress, and how we can actually be more effective in all aspects of our life by starting with our physical and mental health. You're going to absolutely love this episode. My personal tip would be to listen to it twice. The first time would be to just really sink your teeth in, be present with what you're hearing and absorbing. And the second time would be to go back and listen with a notepad nearby so you can stop, start and take notes because that's exactly what I did. And I felt like I got so much out of the episode. So enjoy. And don't forget to leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you're loving the show. It really helps us in growing our community. Let's dive straight in. Alrighty, balances. today I'm joined by an incredible woman who helps other exhausted women go from overworked to energised so that they can take control of their own lives and find their calm, which is a mission that aligns so nicely with everything we do here on The Balance Theory. So I'm honoured to have Penny Lacazzo on the podcast today. Welcome to The Balance Theory. It's so nice to have you on the show.
0: Ah, oh, I've been a long admirer. It's uh, nice <laughs> to be here.
1: No, it's lovely to have you. I know we actually sort of touched base first time in COVID, one of the Mm. the long stages in COVID and we were voicemailing and I remember I was just kind of getting to know you and I was still in my corporate job at the time and we were chatting about doing our own exciting things. So it's actually really cool that we've reconnected about a year later because I feel like we have so much to catch up on and so much has changed since then so I know I shared just a little bit about I guess your mission or your why but can you share with the audience just a little bit about who you are and what you do
0: Mm. um I am oh who I am I always like to question (laughs) who I am as a human being so um if I think about myself as a human being I call myself a happiness hacker um I am (laughs) A mother, i say, of two, so one 11-year-old son who plays soccer six days a week and is fanatical and a black Labrador fur
1: baby. She's the second child I always wanted. Labradors Labradors (laughs) are basically the equivalent of a child. We have a family lab too.
0: (laughs) And um, I, I call myself a happiness hacker. I made it up. So I'm a corporate escapee. I spent 16 years as an executive in a global giant and... About eight years ago now, I turned my whole life upside down in pursuit of happiness. So within a seven-month period, I left the 16-year career as a female with high potential, which I can't stand that term because I'm yet to meet a female with no potential. Um, (laughs) I relocated my family from Perth back to Melbourne. I left an 18-year relationship and started my own purpose-driven company, HackingHappy.co, with the sole intent of helping others define happiness on their terms and then learn the skills leveraging the best of you know science and psychology to actually be able to adapt and make that happiness happen in each day
1: I love that it's um (laughs) it's quite a story and and when you're reflecting on it and looking back it almost sounds I, I feel like when you look at people who have made huge transitions and they and they just kind of talk about their journey it feels like it just sounds like it was so seamless but we all know that's <laughs> never the case. So, I would love to know that moment. Um, and I remember reading you kind of describe it as you had this realization that your happiness was signed, sidelined by your busyness. So, can you just talk mm. me through that actual realization? And I think that's such a beautiful way to put it. I think being busy is almost a distraction sometimes and takes us away from being clear on what we actually want or need. So, I'm really curious to hear about how you came to that realization firstly, and then actually muster the courage to make such a dramatic pivot in your life
0: Mm. I um that the moment it's funny people always ask was there a single moment and I always say it wasn't like a light bulb it was more like a dimmer that gradually got turned up and it's really (laughs) interesting is yeah as human beings how good we are at ignoring signals when they're alerting us to things that are truly important to us but we kind of keep stepping away from them or ignoring them because they make us feel uncomfortable and we know that it's attached with hard work because change is hard right and it requires Mm. sacrifice. So what happened when that dimmer was kind of got to a point where I, I couldn't ignore it anymore and I started to ask myself how is it that at the age of 39 I can have everything that I've ever thought I would need. You know, I was successful. I had a an Audi A5 in the driveway that I paid cash for. Um, you know, I had a beautiful home and everything from the outside looking in was perfect. And I was sitting there completely unfulfilled and exhausted. And uh, when I asked myself what success slash happiness looks like for me on my terms, it was positively impacting the lives of others, being present and in a moment sharing experiences and they were all the things that i consistently sidelined in my pursuit of success and um and ultimately in just being busy you know the success meant that i had to be on the hamster wheel which meant that i was always on and i had this little 2 year old at my feet and all he wanted was time he didn't he didn't care for any like we were always working towards his future and all he wanted was time and that was all he ever asked for he never asked for anything material and i just thought what am i doing and i think that was the moment when i was like if these are the things that make me happy i can't live my life any longer not in alignment with those things and i felt like i didn't have a choice even though it was the hardest i'd say the hardest part of my life ever doing what i did it was not easy but i figured I have a theory, right, so I wouldn't advocate that you do what I did, but I have a theory. When you make such a massive change in your life, like a career change or rel- leave a relationship, the pain is so great that if you add on another change, it's really, it's not incremental. Does that make sense? It's kind of yeah. like you get to a point where the change is so significant, a little more change really doesn't um,
1: feel that more, in it. That, yeah. yeah, so I was like, you, you know already what? made that one, massive shift. That a couple extra moves are just like, well, whatever. We're already here, making such a big alteration. May as well just change everything in one go. You sound like my part, my fiance. That's how he works. That's exactly change. It. Stack it all on. Let's just do it all while we're, while we're going for it.
0: <laughs> well, it's just if you're going to reset the foundations, right? You don't want to do a little bit now and a little bit in two years' time. If you're gonna truly disrupt yourself. And and this is where I think the gift is, right? So many of us avoid self-disruption because it's uncomfortable and it's hard. Mm. And as I said, it comes with sacrifice, but the self-disruption is the gift because the more you you step into it, the more you realize, you know, possibility that you never even knew you were capable of.
1: Mm. Do you think that because you ignored that dimmer for so long and it got to a point where it was so strong, that's the reason you kind of had to make that drastic change in so many areas as opposed to, for example, if that that dimmer or those signs start to show in different areas of your life and if you potentially engage or embrace them at an earlier phase, that's sort of when you can just make changes as they come because I feel like a lot of us have had that experience before where it becomes unavoidable. You can no longer ignore the signs. And it just feels like everything is happening all at once. And maybe that's because we've just let it go that little bit too far down the road.
0: So I have a theory on this and it's anecdotal from working with (laughs) thousands of people in the space that want to make change. And what happens, I can speak on behalf of women, is that more often than not, from the time one starts to think about a significant life change to when they actually act on it, the period is between around two and a half to three years. Wow, that's, that's how very long. long. <laughs> that's how long women tend to sit with a significant change and that's even if they do take action because like we were talking about before you hit record, a lot of people live with longing and wanting to make change or significant um, differences in their life and they live a life of regret because they're too afraid to do it. Mm. Yeah. So I always think yeah. of... Um, Bronnie Ware, who, did, who was the palliative care nurse who worked in Sydney and asked, she did all that research and asked the, the dead or the dead, the dying on their deathbeds, what their number one regret, regret in life was. And it was, I wished I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. And I mm. think if you ever need a wake up call to step into that longing, that's it.
1: Yeah. And that kind of resonates with, I suppose, what you were just talking about, about this concept of success. And I think a lot of us just fall into, well, I suppose like, and I don't blame anyone for this because it's how our society is set up. You know, you kind of go to school, you go to uni, do a good degree so you can get a good job. That's kind of how society is traditionally structured. That's sort of the paved path. And so success by the standard definition is ticking off all those boxes. And as I was just saying to you as well off air, because you were asking me why we moved to Dubai, my partner and I feel like we did that. We both went to uni. I got a really good corporate job. He was a chiropractor, had his own business. We both bought property and it was kind of like you just had this gap, like you, like the same experience you had, like we just didn't feel fulfilled in what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you have that moment where you actually stop to reflect, okay, well, what does success actually mean for me? And remove it from, I think, the the guilt or the embarrassment or the comparison of what that would mean for other people I think that's when you can really start to align yourself with living true and authentically to yourself. But I think that's also such a hard thing to do. Um, And it's something like I'm sitting here saying we've made the move, but it's something we're also now struggling with. Like to work online and work remote means you define your own hours and your own time. And often it doesn't look like a nine to five. And so breaking that norm, like some days it's less, don't get me wrong, and some days it's more. But it's also just getting comfortable with that new norm, which is really, really challenging. And you were saying before, like, obviously, everybody tends towards the path of least resistance because that's the most comfortable option. Um, But I think I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on if anybody listening feels like their dimmer is turning up, it's starting to get brighter, it's starting to become that thing they can't avoid, or they can see it heading in that direction where it's something they can't stop thinking about and they know they're eventually going to have to make a decision on it, but it's making them feel really, really uncomfortable, what would you say to those people to help them embrace or at least explore the option? Because I think sometimes we get so overwhelmed because we think it's going to change our lives and sometimes we just need to think about it, you know, and just entertain it.
0: Mm. So two things. One is um, <laughs> I always say that um, the busy shall inherit the future but the intentionally adaptable will shape it. The question to ask yourself is, do you, I have a whole talk on this. I've been doing it for the last five years and it's so funny because it's still the most popular talk I do because everyone's like, oh, you know, it's like that light bulb moment. So the question is, do you want to be busy and wake up one day finding that you've inherited a future that's been designed by somebody else? Or do you want to wake up one day and be part of shaping the future that you've always dreamed of? And so that's, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is it's not easy to jump into significant change and it's not easy to disrupt yourself. Um, we're so used to, I mean, COVID's a perfect example. When disruption happens, often it's because the world imposes change on us, not because we choose to change ourselves. Mm. So one of the, the best ways to get comfortable with discomfort, which we hear about all the time, but no one ever tells you how to do it, um, so that you can build resilience and you can realise that things are often not as scary as what you think they're going to be. is a beautiful little practice called micro-bravery. And micro-bravery is doing one small thing every day that makes you feel uncomfortable. And it don't compare yourself to anyone else. It's only got to be relative to you. And what makes you feel uncomfortable will be completely different to what makes me feel uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. it might be simple. For a la- example, last night I went to a networking event for the Australian Psychological um, Society. I've never been before. I'm not a qualified psychologist yet. I'm still studying. But that made me feel uncomfortable because I'm amongst all of these people that I admire. It could be as simple as reaching out to someone you've long admired and asking them for a coffee because you want to pick their brains. It might be signing up for a pottery course because you've always wanted to do pottery but thought perhaps you'd be crap at it, but you decide just to put yourself in the space anyway. So small acts of micro-bravery practiced every day, build the courage and confidence to step into bigger fears, bigger discomforts and bigger change over time. And trust me, I, if you had have told me when I left corporate that I would have been able to achieve the things that I have achieved um, off the back of this practice, I would have said you were crazy. It's, you are capable of so much more than what you, so much more than what you realise.
1: No, I love that. And the, and the reason I particularly like it is because I think we get really boxed into I'm a lawyer, I'm an executive, I'm a teacher, and that's what keeps us from venturing and even just contemplating other opportunities. And um, mm. that's a really good way to start training your headspace so that when something comes along, rather than being daunted by it, you kind of are already in that heads- like It's not like a yes man headspace, but it's just like, Things don't overwhelm you, I think, and you're more rational and can just explore things and, and see them in an objective way rather than let emotionally like just detaching and ignoring it. Because I think often when and, and when you hear so many people's stories, the way they end up coming about to do what they're doing or finding their passion or their why is because of some random thing that happened or they took the the wrong turn and ended up meeting somebody or they went to a networking event that they almost missed out on and then went to and they met somebody who changed their life and so it's being like like embracing those moments I think are really the make or break but um, speaking of fear and kind of embracing fear I saw on your Instagram you were doing uh this thing called like a fear museum in your workshop mm. and I would love to just hear a little bit more about that and that approach and how people can use that to navigate fears that may potentially be overwhelming them or holding them back at this point in time.
0: Yeah, so I've been doing this in the corporate world for a while now. So there's a program that I run called the Fearless Masterclass and um basically the place we start in that program. It's all about helping people use fear and failure to actually shape the change that they seek and use it to create the life that they long for. Um, And it's, it's so interesting, right? Because for most of us, we hold our fears inside because we think we're the only ones that are afraid of those things. Fear is attached to weakness. And what that does is it makes the fears bigger and it creates an even bigger barrier to stepping into these things but what i can honestly say is what lies on the other side of fear is you living a wholehearted life you stepping into opportunities so one of the the first things we do in this program is we create a fear museum so you're from a corporate background can you imagine being in a room with your peers and basically we sit down and you do a visualization exercise which connects you to a fear that you have And then you sit there and you draw what your fear looks like and you write down, I am afraid of, and the impact if this fear is realised on me would be. So it's specific, it is personal, so it's directly an impact on you. It can't be, I'm afraid that this person won't be successful. That's not what we're talking about. It's got to be relative to you. And then we put all of the pictures up on the wall and we create a fear museum and we walk through everyone's fears. and it is. Profound, because what you find is when you create a safe space for fear to be shared, what's funny is what happens is not what we, we think will happen. No one judges one another. No one sits there and perceives another as weak. What happens is we immediately connect with one another because we realise that most of our fears are shared. They're all connected mm. in some way, shape or form. And basically we realise that there is an opportunity for us to empathize seek to understand one another and we start to move into more of a problem solving mode like how do we actually process these fears and step through them so that they're no longer a barrier so that's mm. kind of the concept of creating a safe space and then from there it's you know amazing what you can do in a room full of corporate people once that boundary is removed
1: yeah that's really incredible and and i like the picture of paints so of fear being this it almost looks like um a barrier like something you it's almost yeah. just looks like it's it's completely stopping you from doing something but as you get closer you realize it's a hurdle and I think the really beautiful part about doing like a group thing like that one of the biggest parts about fear is you feel like you're kind of the only one going through this and you're kind of ashamed and embarrassed of this fear you're feeling when really it's something a lot of people experience like I remember when I was doing some work with she's sort of like a life coach and when I articulated what my fear was she explained to me how common it was it's almost like a little bit of a warming feeling to know that so many other people struggle with this and I did an episode a little while ago on sort of reframing your relationship with fear and I think Mm. that a lot of the time it pops up when we're doing something new or um, just something we when we're doing something new that we haven't done before because it's just that discomfort and unfamiliarity like that unfamiliarity with what you're doing it's this fear of i don't it's it's the uncertainty and so what i like to do when i start to feel that fear is just remind myself hey this is just presenting itself because i haven't done this before it's only natural because it's not something that i'm comfortable with and reframing that automatically puts me in the space of okay i'm trying something new it's normal i'm feeling this way and then help me navigate but i think just like what you do in your workshops and kind of everything you've just said now, like pinpointing it and becoming aware of it is almost half the effort of dismantling it or at least dealing with it because you actually articulate it for what it is. And the second thing you said there as well is asking if this fear is true, what does that mean for me? Half the time you realize how, well, I don't know if this is an experience you've had, but you kind of realize how irrational the fear is because what you're scared of is so far-fetched or so extreme that it's even going to happen that you realise you're holding yourself back from something that's really a dramatic um, reality, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so the more you hold on to it, the more you ruminate, right, which makes the fear bigger. But what you've just said in terms of how your brain works when fear kicks in, I mean, fear is your body's warning system. You have an amygdala in your brain that kicks in and hijacks your rational brain when you feel fear. And that might even be in today's... You know, it used to be when saber-toothed tigers were banging on the front door as cavemen, and now mm-hmm. it's, you know, you misplace your mobile phone, the amygdala responds exactly the same way because it's repurposed itself for the modern day, right? So mm. your brain kicks into an irrational mode whenever you feel that fear, feeling of fear. And what you've just said in your reframe, your reframe allows you to kick your rational brain back in and process that fear in a way that's constructive rather than destructive, and I mm. think that's that's where the gift is. I mean, fear is your body's warning system to tell you that something is meaningful and important to you. And actually looking deeper into that is mm. extremely powerful.
1: Yeah, and you're right. Like there are situations where fear can be helpful, but it can also be harmful. And I think if you acknowledge that, like obviously if you're seeing a snake in your backyard, like that's a positive form of fear because it's, you know, prompting Absolutely. you to take action. But I think it's just asking or having that, that moment. I feel like everything always comes down to just reflecting an awareness. Like if you just actually just take a minute, like my mom always used to say to me, just that's count true. to three. And now I understand the power in it because it's just taking that pause to think rationally about something that's happening to you rather than like diving into the emotion that's kind of surrounding it. I feel like you can just, it's such a powerful thing to do to help you just get a bit of perspective. I think on something that can hold you back a lot longer than what it needs to and I mean I had that experience before starting the podcast you know I thought well I don't know enough yet I haven't listened to enough podcasts I haven't done enough research I don't have enough episodes recorded and that's just fear talking to kind of I feel like it manifests as well in procrastination as one form Um, without a doubt but yeah I also love the saying, so when
0: all those fears you just spoke about, I'll bet you there's a heap of your listeners that have had the same fears, right? That have wanted to start a side hustle or something like that. And I love the saying that every expert was once a beginner. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so do you know what I mean? Every expert was once a beginner and started in exactly that space. I would guarantee with that mindset, but equally think about everything you've done for the first time. When have you ever done anything for the first time and done it brilliantly? Yeah. The reality is, unless you're open to experimentation, unless you are willing to allow yourself to fail, you're never going to grow.
1: Absolutely. And if you're not failing, then maybe you're not trying hard enough. (laughs) And
0: I I love this idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I love this idea that there's no such thing as failure, there's only lessons it's almost like you you can be a failure if you can, it can be a failure if you let it be. But really when you embrace and acknowledge, and I think listening to other podcasts and other people's stories has helped me really um, connect with what you just said, that every expert was once a beginner, because you, for some reason, we look at people at where they are right now, and we just respect and admire them for that position. And we forget the journey it's taken them to get there. And you, I think when you remove that and You can actually look at somebody's progress and realize you are them maybe 20 years earlier or you're on their journey a lot earlier. It's such a comforting feeling because you just then become so receptive to trying things out and not being so judgmental on yourself, which I think is such a power when talking about balance, because those sorts of emotions really can turn into this negative self-talk that keeps you really blocked Mm. from what you want to be doing, how you want to be spending your time. and you know, just choosing to live a life on your own terms. So I love that we're having this conversation because I think it's just something that's so prevalent in so many people's lives and something a lot of people don't speak about. I think we're really afraid to admit that we have these fears, but kind of on this note, and I'm curious to know in your workshops, is there a top couple of fears that are really common that <laughs> always pop up? Without a doubt. Um, so <laughs> I've done research
0: with about a thousand people on this. So Fear of failure, fear of financial instability, fear of the judgment of others, fear of not being good enough. They are. Mm, That's
1: my one. That's my one. I I really wanted to hear if mine was in there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, the other one that's really interesting as well is fear of success. Like, people have a a real fear of what if I actually do pull this off? And it's funny, I kind of. (laughs) i mean I isn't that the point (laughs) it is but and i mean it's funny i've had this amazing opportunity that's been like on the dream list with the dream partner for the last four years it's part of you know the crescendo of all the research that i've been doing around adaptability and lo and behold it looks like it's going to come off and it's kind of appeared in the last six weeks with the with the partner that i dreamt of you know it's a global opportunity and i must say i'm i feel like i'm in that space now and i you know again i'm Like you, I'm reframing it and going, this is what you wanted. You know, you're capable Mm. of this. So I still have those conversations even though I teach fear and I've been Mm. doing this work for eight years. You can't make fear go away. It is an innately human, um, you know, warning mechanism that is, it's inbuilt. Um, You don't want to make it go away. You want to learn to embrace it and use it in a way that is meaningful. And like you say, awareness is always the first step of any change. You know, if you are not aware of something and can't connect into it, then, you know, there's no foundation for change.
1: Yeah, I think that's really humbling to hear because, again, you often look at people and the work they do or the the way they present online and you just think that they've got it all worked out and they're perfect. But (laughs) I also think it serves as a really nice reminder that you shouldn't wish to never feel fear because it has a very practical and useful um, role in our lives, especially when there's a genuine fear that we need to deal with. But, again, it could also just be used as a little bit of a flag to say we need to look into this, we need to investigate this or you're just doing something new for the first time, it's unfamiliar territory, you know, that's all it is. So I think just, yeah, again, that reflection, not wishing it away and trying to work out a method to never feel fear but rather like having the tools to be able to, I think, navigate it as it comes up is the right word because it is a bit of a roller coaster.
0: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: All right. I think I might pick your brain now a little bit on burnout because it's something I've experienced. I have a lot of um, girlfriends who are high performers and Mm. tend to fall along the pendulum of burnout from time to time. Um, But before we kind of dive into what, you know, burnout generally, I'm really curious to hear about this recent research you've done about the impact of COVID on working women and the rise of burnout. very very curious to hear about this information
0: yeah so um i (laughs) i was talking about busy and why busy equals bullshit before covid started and um what happened then i think in covid is that you know people people worked longer than they've ever worked because there were boundaries between work and life were dissolved because flexible in flexible working was introduced and it was great People embraced it and it was wonderful. But what happened was for a lot of us, there was no boundaries between work and Mm. life. And what that meant is for 30% of professional workers, they found themselves in what they term an always on culture. So they never switched off. And if you overlay on top of that, that women in the home tend to do 2.5 times the amount of domestic work than men. And then if you overlay on that, that mothers um, also take on. The bulk of the load with children even though men stepped up more the research shows during COVID what's happened now we've come out the other side is that um, people have stepped back into life and they're just completely like emotionally um, so mentally emotionally and physically depleted and there's a brilliant well there's a couple of pieces of research that I love to quote so 43% of working women um, have said they feel burnt out and they feel burnt out often. And that's research out of McKinsey that's just come out in the last couple of months and it's global research. I that's think the sample lot. was like 35,000 people, glo- women globally. Of that, um, I think men were like 10% behind that. So it's significantly higher than in men. 53% of female leaders uh same feel burnt out and burnt out often and the problem with that is that the research also shows that female leaders are more likely to um, help their teams avoid burnout because they're more inclusive and engaged in helping people manage their well-being that's what Mm -hmm. the research shows so if these women burn out that then has an on-flow effect in the teams that they manage it equally has an on-flow effect in terms of gender equality and the work that has been done there, because what we're seeing now is that one in three women in the last 12 months, professional working women, have considered um, downgrading or opting out of paid work to the point where in the US, they've had the lowest rate of female participation in the workplace since the early 1980s. Wow. Um, so it's, it's pervasive. It is Mm. absolutely pervasive and, um, yeah, the research was a paper I wrote out of my psych studies and published it online and it had over 40,000 views Like, and just messages from women, you know, all around the place just saying, I completely understand, this is me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I can imagine how um, incredibly difficult that would have felt because, I mean, I can almost, I almost feel like I had a really similar experience. So we've come out of lockdown. You feel like you've almost had one to two years of no distractions, no social events. You feel like you're ready to go out into the world. And you're like, why don't I have any energy? I've literally been doing nothing on the weekends. Like, I don't get it. I've just been at home. And you almost fall into this situation where you're like, what's wrong with me? Like, have I just turned into an introvert? And these were sorts of the internal dialogue that I was having. And it was really confronting for me because I was like, I'm an extrovert. I love being social. All these things have had so much more time to chill out. Like, why am I not kind of ready to embrace the world? It was this really confronting time. And I went through, well, adrenal fatigue slash burnout at the time when we'd come out of lockdown, which to me did not make sense. But now hearing you speak, of course, it's, it's that always on culture just because you physically weren't moving. It's incredible um, the impact of the mind and not having like boundaries, especially in your space, like the the impact of that long term. Um, and, And I'm sure a lot of people listening would have had a really similar experience, if not still to date, be struggling with maybe the ongoing ramifications of that. Because if you think we've gone from being unknowingly in burnout during lockdown, it's kind of only been on since then as well. So people who may still be carrying the signs or the repercussions of that, what what do you kind of, what should they be looking out for firstly if that, if that is something they're experiencing and what are some of the things they can do to help them mm. recalibrate, I suppose?
0: <laughs> so the first, I think the simplest sign to look for is if you wake exhausted no matter how much sleep you've had, something's not yeah. right. hmm Um, I'd say that's probably the easiest indicator. If you wake every day and you feel like you're exhausted before the day even begins, which is what I consistently hear, um, I would say you're probably close to or on your way to what I call the burnout superhighway, which is peak hour every day at the moment in the professional world. Mm. Um, There is a psychological theory called the conservation of resources theory, and I found it really interesting when I was looking into stress And what happens to the body and basically how it works is that each morning you wake like a bit like a mobile phone right so your mobile phone battery's on full charge in the morning because maybe you've put it on charge overnight so you wake with a set amount of mental and physical resources in the morning and then how you choose to use those resources throughout the day will determine whether they are recharged or whether they're depleted And what happens is, like a mobile phone, as you move through the day and the battery level goes down, most of us have become really good off the back of always on working, working through when our body gives us that warning signal, like the mobile phone to say, battery's about to go flat, put me on the recharge. Um, We just basically step over that because we're busy and we just keep going. So we ignore our body's warning signals. And then what happens is we wake up the next morning and we feel like the battery's on half charge and we sit there wondering why. And so Mm. the reality is if you are not investing in recharging your batteries every day, you are going to put your body and your mind into a state of chronic stress. It is only a matter of time. And chronic stress is what leads to burnout and guaranteed long-term chronic stress will equally shorten your life and will bring a whole host of wonderful issues from a health perspective in quite quickly. So that's kind of how the psychology of it works in a very simplistic way. So if you're Mm. waking exhausted, that is why. And the simplest thing you can do, um, one of the things I love that I've been sharing recently is do an energy audit. And so an energy audit is as simple as most high-performing professionals have a to-do list. So grab your to-do list and as you move through it during the day, have two coloured highlighters. And highlight the things on that to-do list that recharge your batteries and highlight in a different colour the things that deplete your batteries. So what you're creating then is an awareness of the things that actually suck your energy away. Mm,
1: I once love that. You've got
0: that yeah, once you've got that awareness, then you can start to brainstorm, what can I do about these energy depleting activities? Can I delegate them? Could I, if I'm an entrepreneur, outsource some of this stuff? Could I shift how I do it? So might it be better for me to, before I get into this activity, go for a walk and recharge my batteries? Or can I change how I structure my approach to this activity so that it actually does give me more energy as I go through it? I do it in longer blocks or shorter. Whatever it is, it starts to give you a way to tackle those energy depleting. And also, you can even ask yourself, what would happen if I didn't do this? Because I also Mm. think there's a lot that we think we have to do that if we didn't do it, the world wouldn't care. No one's watching. (laughs) No one would notice. (laughs) No. And the other challenge I would give yourself, like I said about the um, what are you doing to recharge your batteries, saying I'm going on a retreat in a month's time is not going to avoid chronic stress. You need to do small things every day to recharge your batteries. And as I say, it can be as simple as stepping away if you're someone that sits on Zoom for eight hours a day, which is more common than you would think, um, it's actually putting schedule breaks to get up and get out and do things that are going to make you feel good because you don't want to end up like I hear cases all the time, people that have sat on Zoom for the last two years for eight to ten-hour stints and the other day a woman told me that three months ago after doing that she literally turned her head on a Zoom meeting and three discs popped out of her neck and she's been now in um, rehab for the last three months.
1: Like it's crazy. Your body and your mind can only take so much. And I think that's the tricky the tricky barrier with burnout. It, it's almost like if you're getting the signs, you really need to jump on it because I think once you're burnt out, it's an indefinite period for how long that burnout lasts, how long that sort of lull period lasts, like your body just will take as long as it needs to reset. And so you really want yeah, to avoid account. letting it get that far. But I really love the analogy of treating our energy like a phone battery because instantly, you know, you can't just charge your phone twice a year or once a month and expect it to work the whole time. So I really love that analogy. And, and I was actually just thinking in my head, how often we just try and use the 1%. When it's got 1% left in our phone, you feel like it lasts forever and you just push it and push, <laughs> it, and push it and push it. And it eventually dies. Like seriously, yep. sometimes that's what it feel, that can feel like with yourself. Like you're just hanging on by the last thread of energy, pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. Pushing it. And I mean, I've gone to that point where you just, I remember specifically it was Christmas Eve and I sat on the couch because it was the first day I had off work in a long time and I could not get up. And I'm like to-do list, structured day, routine, high performer and I was like I physically could not get off the couch and I was like okay, I think this is what burnout feels like. That was like my first experience with it. And I just think if you have the signs that you're heading towards that, do what you can to recharge along the way. Like you said, don't plan something for a month. Although I mean, plan that thing, but also plan what you can do on a day-to-day basis. And when we talk about balance, it's not about, okay, I know on a macro level, like this is what life balance means to me. It's what can you do every day to feel balanced? Because sometimes we have days where our attention and our priority might be your family and others, it might be your work and, and what you're doing, you know, as, in your career. And so your balance needs to be adaptable and flexible and you need to be able to ask yourself the question every day, what can I do to recharge? Only if it's something simple, which is why I absolutely love the idea of the two lists with the two highlighters, which my to-do list brain, technical, like kind of handwritten personality absolutely loves that uh, (laughs) color coding situation. And it helps you be really intentional with the activities you're doing and how you're spending your time, which I think is so important to balance. And then it helps you really... Um, I think, cause I talk a lot about time blocking, but I think this mm. integrated with time blocking would be really, really powerful because you could say, okay, I know I'm really energetic in the morning. I'm going to do the hardest things first, the things that I cannot delegate, things that I know I have to do but the things I know that deplete my energy I might do that in the morning when I have more energy or you know you might restructure that to do it in a way like you said where you prefer to work in smaller stints or longer bouts or whatever that looks like for you but I think that's a really incredible tip not one I've heard before because it helps you just bring that situational awareness into how things make you feel and then you can actually start to craft like I think We feel like our nine to five is almost sometimes outside of our hands, like we have no control over it. But I think if you start becoming Mm. aware of the activities you like or the way you like to work or the way you like to communicate, you can actually create a lot of autonomy in, in the space in which you're working. And if you can't, then maybe it's not the right job for you. But I think that can make a really big difference with people's relationship with their day to day work, which let's face it, is where we spend the majority of our time.
0: Without a doubt. And, you know, when you talk about time blocking, I'm a big fan of time blocking, but I work less hours now as an entrepreneur than I ever worked in the corporate world. And mm. I prioritise my recharging of my batteries throughout the day. It's all scheduled in my diary so yeah. that I do it and it is a priority. And the reason I work less hours is because I'm more productive. You, yeah. Productivity doesn't come from working 12 hours a day. And I can honestly tell you, productivity is not going to happen eight hours staring at a zoom screen and i think that's probably one of the most detrimental things that i'm seeing at the moment the fact that we've normalized sitting on zoom all day what that does in terms of the overstimulation of your brain not to mention physically what it does to your body sitting at a computer staring at a zoom call all day is um it's It's crazy. And the research has already shown that it is not healthy and we are in Mm. the very early stages of this occurring. There's no longitudinal studies yet because, you know, we haven't had long-term periods of people sitting on Zoom for eight to ten hours for, you know, five, ten years.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. But, um, you know, I think this conversation serves nicely to give people some tools on how they can really reconsider their day how they work how they like to work and and really think about their time in terms of their energy i think we're always thinking about our time in terms of how much it's worth from a monetary point of view but i think this mm. helps us look at it as an energy transfer point of view which i think really is just the foundation to looking at your balance because you know you could go through a whole day realizing that you do all these activities and spend time with all these people who deplete your energy and then be sitting there scratching your head and being like well i meditated this morning You know, sometimes it's just, it's not about, you know, just ticking off the bare minimum. It's about actually doing a bit of a deeper dive and looking at, okay, well, what's the essence or what is the actual substance of how I'm spending my time and where can you do something about it? Do you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. And that's why the more you step into the space of recharging your batteries, the more present you can be in the moments that matter. And I think for me, you know, I want to show up in life fully um, and intentionally. And when I exercise, when I walk the dog, when I walk my son to school, when I play soccer with him in the park, they're the things that make me a better worker, that make me a better human. They make me more creative. They make me more innovative. You know, that that's the interesting things. The things that you sideline in your pursuit of busy and success are often the things that will take you, to success, which is the irony, right?
1: Absolutely. And sometimes... They...
0: Sorry. No, after you, after you. Oh, is this, I, I think productivity has become the disease. This, yeah. this relentless drive for productivity has created this busy culture and, and busy is the fast track to burnout. And what people don't realise is the more you take care of yourself physically and mentally, the more effective you become in every aspect of your life.
1: Hmm. well I think it's also about looking at how we define productivity so as you were just saying you work less now as an entrepreneur than you did as an executive I wholeheartedly agree I, I remember because as a lawyer we do billable hours right so your time is measured in six minute blocks and so to you know to justify what a law firm is charging a client they need to be able to say well this lawyer spent X amount of time doing this hence why you're being billed and so our time transfer or value, was very clearly linked to a monetary number and figure. And I always Mm. had the biggest issue with this because some people work in, you know, if you have a six minute block, what I can achieve versus somebody else can, what somebody else can achieve can be completely different. So say I'm super productive because I know at 10 AM I'm most creative and I do most of my writing at that time. If I spend, if I build two units, a 12 minute block, and I've done what somebody takes an hour to do in an afternoon because they're less energetic at that time. It looks like on paper I've done less work. And so I always <laughs> had such an issue. I, I, I just had such an issue with how um, how that system worked and how it defined you and your, not success, but I guess your output. And, uh, I, just knew, like, yeah. and I just That's exhausting. Like I'm exhausted saying that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I th- actually think in turn it actually, uh, Led me into a position where I was actually unproductive because I was almost stringing out tasks just to fill time. Sorry if any of my old bosses are listening to this, but it was the truth (laughs) because I was, I was, you know, no one would ever say, okay, you can go home at three o'clock because you've done the work you need to do today. It was never enough. It was always more, more, more. And there was no value of how people worked, how they liked to work. And um, I guess recognition of the different ways we can look at productivity. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. And if anybody listening is in a position or a workforce where they feel like the way that they define productivity is just a complete misalignment with how their workplace is, then um, I think that's something to think about because that's also going to impact your ability to be able to pick and choose, you know, what, what's making you feel energetic and not, especially within the work hours, which is where we spend most of our time. Mm. So, yeah, those are my thoughts on productivity. <laughs> I love it.
0: Productivity is output, right? But it's, the problem is, like you say, you, the old saying, if you want something done, ask a busy person. And that's because a busy person won't say no. And I'll guarantee mm. you, if you think about the busiest person that you know, I'll bet you they're not the most productive.
1: Interesting. Put
0: money on it. Um, yeah. yeah. Because no. what you find is busy people um, often suffer from people pleasing um they Mm. suffer from perfectionism and they suffer from not being able to say no and from FOMO fear of missing out if I don't say yes to everything I might miss the big thing and all of those things link back to what we've been talking about it's that's where burnout is born
1: yeah yeah and I think the biggest um thing to pull out from this is just to remember that busyness doesn't equal productivity. I'm not saying it it never does, but I don't think it's the hallmark of being productive or successful. I think at times you are busy and that's fine, but I don't think it should be that goalpost that we aspire to and that we use as a metric to define ourselves within success or fulfillment
0: one of the things i'm really passionate about and i um have done a lot of work with with people around the world is um busy is actually a word that really doesn't hold a lot of meaning and from the research that i've done um in the realm of busy we have found that busy is often code for something else so think about the last time for your listeners that you said the word busy what were you really saying what was the narrative in your head Because, as I say, busy more often than not is code for something else. Often we find it's code for anxiety, it's code for distraction, for overwhelm, for Mm. um, self-validation. If I'm not busy, I'm not important, so I need Mm. to stay on a hamster wheel to be relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, But challenge yourself to dig a little bit deeper into when you use the word busy, what are you really saying inside your head? Because I'll guarantee you it's something completely different. And, again, awareness is the first step to change. And it's really fascinating when we do this in, you know, I've done this in front of audiences of a thousand and people yell out, you know, last time I told someone I was too busy to do something, I was basically I'm burnt out, I can't do any more work or I don't want to do it or I mm. don't have the time for that. I'm not interested. And I'm like imagine if instead of saying busy we said what we were really thinking.
1: Yeah. That's incredible. And that, and if everybody collectively just made a unified decision to stop using busy as code, I think we'd be a lot more understanding and realize we're kind of all going through really similar um, experiences. So I quite like that, actually. I was just thinking in my head when you asked that question. And honestly, the last time I said that, it was like a bit of a self-importance thing. Like, you know, I'm just I have so much on my plate type thing. It's a self-validation thing. Um, mm. so I think a lot of people listening probably also feel that it is code for something else, and just being aware of that, I think, and steering away from using that as a metric of your your value. Worth I think, yeah. yeah your value, I think, um is really, really key. Penny, I've taken so many golden nuggets out of today's episode. I cannot <laughs> wait to re-listen to this and to share it with everybody else. We could probably chat for hours on end but I know it's getting late there so I'm gonna let you go for now but I'll definitely have to have you back on in the future and hear about all these incredible opportunities that are coming your way but please if the listeners want to connect with you follow along your journey where's the best place they can do so and I'll pop some links in the show notes below
0: yeah well it depends on what your flavor is um you'll find me on instagram (laughs) hacking happy co um I'm a bit prolific on linkedin you can just find me under my name penny lacasso or you can just go to the website, hackinghappy.co. But thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute joy.
1: Likewise, I'll pop links to all of that. And like I said, can't wait to catch up again, maybe in a year's time and see where, where we're both landed.
0: Love to.